So this, this morning there's a question and answer period and there are a fair number of uh, questions which are here and I'd just like to mention with this period of time of course and with any other questions such as after the evening talk sometimes I cannot know the totality of the uh, interest and the intentions of the person who is actually asking the question and in the briefness of a question um, I um, may not perceive that so what has happened at times of course is persons asked the question I have answered it, answered it in a particular way but it hasn't actually uh, connected with the uh, interest, particular form of interest of the person's question. So my answers may not respond to your question. If that does happen, then do please feel free to see me one-to-one or to bring the question up again in the small group which takes place. And the other aspect, too, equally important, of course, is that in my responses to the questions, it's simply one person's um, whatever understanding or, ex- or expression um, and response to the question. I, as I mentioned, I have a, rather, a lot of questions here and um, I completely forgot to have a really good look at them beforehand so I could pick out the easy ones. But anyway. <laughs> Sometimes, um, because of language problems, it's a little bit hard to follow the question, and um, and sometimes because of um, handwriting as well, and sometimes both together. However, as well as is there any there was a bit of light and oh, brilliant. <laughs> Some things in India are so unexpected, like liquidity. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you spoke about reincarnation as a process by using the example of the waves. Could you please be more precise in what your belief or faith is founded on? Um, I can't remember when, but anyway, in some time during the retreat, I had was asked a question about uh, reincarnation. In, I just want to make a small uh, linguistic difference here. With reincarnation, generally speaking, it is understood that something from one person, one body, or whatever, uh, migrates <coughs> at death and <coughs> enters in and takes form in another body, according to the conditions which are there. Uh, and this, the concept of reincarnation is more widely used in the Hindu tradition. In the Buddhist tradition, it, the concept is much more rebirth, our reforming, we might say. So the metaphor which I used was that we are like waves on the ocean, and the wave is a force on the ocean. And when there is still that force which is there, in this case the force of desire, the force of wanting, the force of need, the force of addiction, the wave is there, 
gives compulsion to that wave, the wave dissolves and reforms again, and we see this cycling going on and on. As we explore into the nature of the wave, we perhaps begin to see perhaps we're not the wave that we think we are, but looking perhaps more deeply into the nature of the ocean. And, it's, and that's one, one um, <coughs> aspect there. And I'm asked what, I, what the belief of faith is founded on. Um, it's certainly not founded on um, um, uh, texts. I uh, think they're only useful if they correspond to our um, exploration. But um, I think just in one's explorations and meditations into the nature of time and movement and the insights and discoveries which, discoveries which come out of that, I found for, my say, for, for myself a certain um, faith in the um, unending process of becoming and the process of things. And I feel quite receptive, as I mentioned at one point, to the uh, belief, we may say, in the processes of birth and rebirth. I don't think at all it is an at all, at all essential kind of belief at all. And of course, in the process over the years of myself, there have been a variety of uh, experiences which occur and these experiences seem totally unfamiliar as far as one's present or <coughs> conventional life is concerned. And I've noticed in myself and others as well have said that sometimes there is in these experiences which one can't relate to anything that has happened in recent years and so forth, there is a sometimes a wish to put the label on it past life recollection. And I think it is quite appropriate for some people who uh, wish to do that, but of course to be cautious with regard to that. But far more important than all, all of that is what's happening today. That's what has, has to be the priority and not our various views and opinions on the past and on the future. What is the connection between peace, clarity, emptiness I become when I grasp the breath and the world that we are part of. Again, sometimes there are more than one question on a, piece of, on a single piece of paper, so uh, to be fair, I just answer one question. Um, each time we make, we make contact with the breath, we, if we can bring into that attention and focus that every contact with the breath is the contact with the world, is the contact with life which is around us, the very element of breathing, the very, uh, uh, the very air itself comes from our immediate environment. We take it into ourselves and in the moment we take it into ourselves, the moment that it gets released. And this is a constant reminder to us of the coming and going, the inhaling and the exhaling, the receiving and the returning to. And if we can bring those kind of attentivenesses, mindfulnesses, observations, with the breath, the, the, the breath will be the ongoing revelation of our connection with our world, of our environment. And if that gets really established, that interconnectedness there, then that will affect our thinking, our speech, our action, our, our perceptions of life. 
So you say, hey, the air comes from the environment. I draw it in, and then it comes back. And <coughs> in that, nobody's going to have more in-breaths than out-breaths, are they? If you have, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <coughs> Many times in life I feel very lonely. I don't like being lonely. I'm afraid of being lonely. What is your response? This situation of uh, loneliness is uh, very, very widespread, very wi widespread in our culture. <coughs> and we see this tragic isolation of people from each other. And even sometimes when a person is in the company of friends and loved ones and contact, still there can be this uh, acute exposure to feeling very, very lonely. And it's a very difficult and um, painful feeling to deal with. And like with our other um, feelings and emotions which take place, it can be something of a habit of, of this. And and I think the loneliness, in a way, is in some expression of two things. I think one is, again, the loss of sense of connection and our way of looking at life that we keep seeing ourselves separate from life. And sometimes our thinking is such that the way that we are thinking is also separating us from life. This becomes a, pa a pattern, so a gap is set up I feel lonely, I feel separate, I feel different from other people, I don't feel like other people, I don't feel other people understand me. All <coughs> this contributes to our, our feelings of, of loneliness. And we have to be rather, I think, tough, strict, disciplined and heartful with ourselves and, say, and ask ourselves, can I really ever be separate? As long as I'm breathing, as long as the air is there, as long as the sky above and the earth below. So with our feelings of loneliness which take place <coughs> in those times, where is my connection? Sometimes the loneliness, the most common form, has to be loneliness from, from each other. And I think what helps to feed this, this feeling of loneliness is that it's an unspoken difficulty. And there's a hesitation amongst us to speak about our loneliness. And I, and I think quite often in schools, in, in uh, workplaces, when being on the road or being in retreat or whatever, the exposure to the loneliness can arise. I think when I hear it, and I'm sure it's the same for you, that it really brings out a, a deep response that, that sense of loneliness when one hears that from somebody and it touches us and we want to respond and be a, a friend and supportive to that person but as long as we as it were live in our loneliness I think in, in that we in a way perpetuate it and I think we have to break out of that cycle by sharing our loneliness sharing those feelings with each other and out of that perhaps just like that we can dissolve it and then there's that uh, unbroken connection. If I don't think I'm incomplete, there is no drive to become complete, so isn't it better to think I'm incomplete 
in order, for example, to get the energy for this retreat. <laughs> I don't think I'm in completely the way I did it. Alright, so sometimes when we hold to the idea of ourself, remember we have to hold to the idea, we hold to the idea of I am incomplete. Yes, certainly, that can provide us with the energy and the motivation to come on a retreat, to go through the, uh, the journey of the retreat, and as the person <coughs> points out, to get the energy. But, why hold to this idea? If we're here to inquire and to, to question and to look at assumptions of ourself, let's have the energy to look at the assumption. Not the energy which says, I am complete and therefore I will now get the energy together to get somewhere. Let the energy be to look at this idea. And supposing we really start inquiring, investigating into this idea and we need a lot of energy and a lot of attention and a lot of interest for, for that perhaps we can see through the notion I am incomplete and equally see through the notion I am complete both are conceits of the mind <laughs> how to get rid of the ego <laughs> a minor question <laughs> I think in, our, in any situation the question of ego comes up. I think like other, other questions in a way, the question is too big for an answer. What, what could anyone say? What could I say? So wh what I prefer with such questions is when I am being egotistical, when I am, um, when my, I can sense my ego occurring, and remember, to make a small difference here, in the East, ego is always described in unsatisfactory terms. In Sanskrit, the word is ahankara, which means I-making activity, I-ego, I-making activity. Sometimes in the West, for those who are familiar with psychotherapy, the response to the word ego is differently and ego will be used as um, finding ways and means to um, establish oneself, to build up self-confidence, to build up the ego. So there's a, a more positive tone. But in Eastern language, Eastern therapy for that matter, we might say, e ego is always unsatisfactory. Therefore, to look at this eye-making activity that we get swept up in or caught up in, since I say it's too big a question for itself, this how-to, therefore in our exploration, when I'm engaged in eye-making activity, what's it related to? When I am building up my ego, when I'm getting arrogant or conceited or, or selfish or greedy or 
judgmental or fearful or whatever it might be what's it in connection with what's it related to put it in a context get it in a context then I think there's something to work with but if I just say how to get rid of the ego in that form I um, suspect if we got rid of it we'd be so proud <laughs> I think about sex all the time <laughs> and can't let go. How can I let go? <laughs> it's a different person from who asked the last question. <laughs> The two people are probably sitting next to each other. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps they should get together anyway. <laughs> um, um, with regard to uh, 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 sex and um, meditation, just at a very, very general level, very, very general level here, um, I think uh, religion has, uh, for far too long, had a very, in very general terms, a very uncomfortable relationship with, in, with, with regard to sex. And lots of rationalizations have been put out, and the virtues of uh, celibacy rather than uh, sexual life, the uh, notions of conserving one's energy by, um, by abstinence, all this has tended to be part and parcel of uh, some of the belief systems and the consequences um, of that too, of course, in uh, hierarchy, uh, discrimination against women, all that. Is, one has the sense in a religious life that uh, unresolved areas around sexuality is a factor in all of that. So I think it needs to be addressed on the larger level, religious life and, and the uh, unfairnesses and injustices which still persist in it. And I just want to make a point on this. It's rather extraordinary, I feel, that sometimes things that we can't tolerate in the religion of our birth, from the West, if we are from the West, we are more likely to put up with with Eastern religions. And we can see that one, one went to Rome and saw the Pope sitting on his platform and the cardinals and the bishops and so forth and all the male structure there, one would be, may feel very, and all the ritual and the ceremony, one would feel very, very critical. But what's the difference under the tree? With the monks and the robes and the platforms and the hierarchy. And somehow or other, sometimes some people are more allowing and less concerned than they would be about their own Western religions. Needs to be looked at more carefully. So there's the outer considerations, and some of us have uh, worked rather hard, if I may say, to bring about some change in the system, in, in Buddhism, which is, needs to look at itself very, very seriously in these areas. And then the, the, the situations like this one here. So, again, sometimes 
person in the sitting period, in the walking period, as a person, this person's got a remarkable mind, says he or she says all the time, <laughs> um, is, um, I, I doubt it, there's probably an interruption of food, and <laughs> in the situation, sex comes, idea, feelings, sensations, etc. With that, quite often, too, there also comes a reaction. The person is saying, uh, I can't let go. How can I let go? I'm not sure if that's the best way to approach it. So sometimes the memory comes of past situations of uh, sexuality, sensuality, and uh, very potent feelings and sensations, and ple generally <coughs> intensely pleasurable. Sometimes they come with regard to somebody who is here or somebody in the future and again the sensations are there. And then sometimes they say, oh let go of this, drop all of this or whatever. I think very easily we can start stamping on those uh, sexual images <laughs> and sensations and not deal with them very well or skillfully. So firstly, very important, in the sexual fantasy which is taking place, either has been or might be, assuming it's not going on already, that in that, what kind of motivation and intention is there? <coughs> so we want to look at that and say, well, in that, is there some exploitation of that other person taking place? Is there some manipulation there? Is there, sometimes, is there some sadism or, or violence in that sexual fantasy? And that, that needs to be addressed very, very much because therefore one is abusing human rights, human relationships. So one wants to look if there is any of that there. If there isn't, one is having a sexual fantasy, there is uh, um, an uh, eroticism within the, the sexual uh, fantasy there, and it's free from those kind of negative corruptions and manipulations there, either past or uh, future, I would say with regard to that, to be aware of the feeling, of the energy, of the sensations which are there and just to acknowledge them. Not trying to get rid of. Sometimes in a simple way the breathing can help, of course, breathing in, plenty of relaxed breathing out and that can help to reduce a little bit of that energy which seems to be heading downhill downwards, not downhill, but downwards um, towards the genitals at a remarkable speed sometimes at such a speed that the person can't get up at the end of the sitting however, so sometimes the breathing can help the flow of the energy a little bit more easily and, uh, and fluidly there the other, the other is, with that, can the image fade away so that the energy and the pleasantness that accompanies it is just retained in the body so that the cellular life can be stimulated, why not? But there's a uh, fading away of the image so we're not putting the force of will on to try to get rid of and I think that kind of uh, attitude towards uh, sexual life is quite, quite healthy I think eroticism you know, comes originally in Greek, eros, love, and when there's closeness and connection and affection between two people, 
then the memory does flow, the memory comes. And I can't see anything so unhealthy about it. That's my view, I mentioned at the beginning, <laughs> to cover myself. <laughs> what is enlightened? And who else than Buddha is or was enlightened? Funny this question always comes up in Buddhagaya. Mm. <laughs> um, with the word uh, uh, enlightenment, this word is, has, used, has been used frequently, frequently, far too frequently for the last two and a half thousand years. And um, in my more uh, critical moments, I have sometimes expressed regret at the events that took place under that tree over there two and a half thousand years ago. Simply because it, I think it set up, I don't think that the, uh, the Buddha, Gautama, um, perhaps uh, uh, realized it, but it set up a kind of archetypal model which has run on for two and a half thousand years, which has said, there is this, um, what was the word that Ian used? Eh? Not around this morning. Um, what was it? Prize, that was the word he used last night, prize. There is this big prize called enlightenment, and some huge event in one's consciousness is going to take place and suddenly one is enlightened, and of course everybody will know, because why not? And this becomes the thing to get, this kind of religious consumerism. And I wonder whether enlightenment is that kind of relationship to life and that kind of relationship to experience. And to the Buddha, to his everlasting credit, he just spoke a couple of times about his experiences under the tree. Sariputra, his close friend, asked him, and in, the, uh, in their old age they got chatting and rem reminiscing, as old people do. <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't say these things, it creates a wrong impression. But anyway, they got chatting and he was reminiscing and, and then Saraputra said to uh, Gautama, he said, uh, what went on? What was going on when you were over there under that tree some 40 years ago or whatever? And then the Buddha gave an outline of that. And he did it uh, on another occasion. So in 40 or 50 years, it's, it seems to be from the accounts, just a couple of occasions when he spoke about it. Somehow rather the tradition has grasped onto this and taken a hold of it, and it leads to this kind of question. And once Sariputra, no, Ananda, I think, was, was response to the question again, Ananda said to the Buddha, that in all this world, there's nobody who can compare with you. You're, you're so awake, you're so insightful, you've realized so much, your heart is full of so much compassion, you, 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 the, 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 the the, the substance of birth and death and coming and going has, has lost all relevance, you know, the deathless, the birthless. And there's just no one on this earth to compare with you. And the Buddha's response, fantastic. The Buddha said, Ananda, 
I didn't know that you had met everybody. That question is also about dealing with uh, the sex. Another one dealing with completion and incompletion. <laughs> Lovely. Your Dharma teaching is wonderful, but I will never remember it. <laughs> so, there's another expression of faith here. In the, in the listening, some people, and as you, as you wish, some people like, do like to take a note of what has been heard, either one line or two at the end, or during the course of the listening, and that can be a reminder, and also um, afterwards or a later date, some opportunity for some reflection. And a small number of people like to listen in that way. Others just engage in the listening itself, and no notes, just uh, lending an ear on the teachings. With regard to the listening itself, it requires a trust and faith. And that means that though in the course of, say, a 45-minute period a lot, is, a lot is said, one's trust is that in giving fullness of attention to the listening, what the heart needs to absorb, needs to respond to, will take place. And the wonderful thing about that, and I know for myself and, and, and as you too, that in the time of, of listening, we listen, may listen to quite a lot. Sometimes the mind wanders and we come back. Sometimes, at the time, something seems very relevant and something else we heard, we, as the person says, just never remember, just don't remember. And then, I notice in myself, days, weeks, months, years later, it, it, it flowers. I just heard that. I remember, now I understand what it means. I um, discussed that in a small group, that, and ah, now I understand, or in, a, in, in a, a sitting, in a walking, or during the day, a thought arose. It didn't seem to have any relevance at the time, and yet now it's, wow, it's full of richness, and it's, and it's really saying something. So I think our trust is that in if we give fullness to the listening, using our discernment, meaning it's something is useful, then to allow oneself to uh, digest it. If something isn't useful or irrelevant or uh, off the wall or exaggerated or whatever, let it go or come and speak to one of us and having that um, openness of purpose. And as I mentioned a few days ago with regard to the listening, it's not that we listen and then we have to practice. It's not that we listen and then we go and apply. That does apply in some cases, but in the listening itself, the understanding can be immediately, immediate, whatever it is. If I say we can discover right here and now the end of karma, and we don't have to live out of the controlling patterns of the past, we can be free from the shadow of the past, and I say that that can be for us right now, 
that it can be right now and our freedom then is right now. Nothing worked. That's the miracle and wonder of spiritual life. Nothing worked out, nothing resolved, nothing worked upon. We see, we know, we understand the truth of it and we're free right now. No, no feeling of being under the control of yesterday or yesteryear. And that's the immediacy of teaching. person asks, good question, if there is no effect, how can there be discipline? So in the talk the uh, other evening I spoke about the discipline and as the person points out here, there is the, the discipline in which I apply a discipline, I require a purpose for my discipline and because I apply a purpose, I have an intention, my action is my, my discipline and some result comes from that discipline. During the days you and I are exercising disciplines, there's the intention for that, purpose goes with it and some result comes out of it. All of that is valuable and sometimes that application of the discipline is quite hard. But then I spoke briefly about effortless discipline in which there is the wisdom, or there's the seeing of a situation. And one sees that the situation requires the discipline. Whether it's for food, whether it's for meditations, whether it's for one's life, or whatever it might be. The effect isn't the important thing. It's the wisdom that sees the situation and it's just necessary to respond. Even if the benefits from it are tremendously wonderful and deep, equally for oneself and others, one is emerging out of the wisdom that says dis the discipline in life is valuable because it doesn't exploit and exhaust the resources of others or oneself or the earth. And, and, and when we see that, I would say the discipline comes effortlessly. When we see the suffering of others, the discipline of that commitment and that dedication for the welfare of others, it comes effortlessly. <coughs> and therefore, the effect is not that priority, not that important. <coughs> take a few more questions. There will be another question answered in a few days. All sorrow and sadness being due to attachment does this mean that a person <coughs> living in a state of non-attachment does not feel sorrow and sadness with the passing away of a beloved one, of a loved one? <coughs> does a question, very um, important question, does a person who abides in non-attachment not feel sorrow and any sadness when a loved one dies or passes away? And this is a um, and this, shall we say, uh, a heart area question. We said, I have said, and other teachers, with regard to the value of non-attachment. When we are attaching and possessive, in, in a way it corrupts the organic natural love, because it becomes <coughs> attached and possessive. So we say, let's free ourselves from our attachment, so the love is there, 
without the possessiveness. Well, I've noticed in myself uh, at the loss of uh, a loved one is that when there's somebody in our life who has been very uh, close to us for a short period sometimes or for a long period and sometimes the time factor doesn't seem to be of the greatest importance. Sometimes it's the way a person has touched us deeply. That, 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 that seems to be more significant than the amount of time that the person, the way the person has touched us deeply. Now what I've noticed in myself, that when a person that I have been close to has died, I feel in my um, chest, in my um, uh, stomach, in this, this area of body, those feelings of someone being close, not being present. And those feelings conventionally might be described as sorrow and sadness. But to myself, it doesn't feel like sorrow and sadness. It doesn't feel like um, um, a heaviness which accompanies that loss. It doesn't feel like being um, lost or wallowing or submerged in feeling self-pity and sad and uh, sorrowing over a situation. But it seems like to me that there's the loss of the loved one and in those feelings which are there one feels <coughs> something out of the loss because of the closeness which has been established. And I think when sometimes when, in the, when we lose, lose uh, loved one, we're not trying to in our non-attachment, get rid of those kind of feelings. Uh, somehow it makes us a little bit inhuman. <coughs> inhuman, I feel. But rather, when there is loss and there is that response, is it, are we getting heavy in the sadness, heavy in the sorrow, and all that goes with it? And I think if we're in touch with ourselves, we can know the difference. And what the Buddha's speaking of is the ending of sadness and sorrow, that heaviness and um, kind of being lost in self-pity and feeling the whole world on oneself out of a loss. Although the Buddha did not speak of lucid dreaming, per se, do you think it could be, should be valuable for meditation? Lucid dreaming, the person puts in brackets, is a technique for becoming increasingly <coughs> conscious during the state of dreaming. Um, well, firstly, he did, I would add. And second, if he did, so what? So, with regard to dreaming, sometimes they may be daydreamy and sometimes not. And sometimes people report when they go to sleep at night, they have the most <laughs> extraordinary dreams, unbelievably uh, clear, and one seems to have more clarity in sleep than in the day, but nevertheless. <laughs> and this dream, so the dreams come in very, very vivid dreams. I think, as a person points out, can be very, very valuable. And of course in some therapies, Jungian therapy being uh, an outstanding one, has recognized the value of dream as being insightful into human daily existence. 
the difficulty is a couple of ones. Um, one is that sometimes we start speculating about what the dream means. I would say, once we start speculating, then to drop the speculation when we wake up immediately. And just buying books on what dreams mean and fitting in characters into the dream, I think, is um, pointless. And the, the, the other, please, out of compassion for myself, sometimes people come and say, Christopher, I had this incredible dream. And I have to say that, I think it was in Massachusetts once, uh, somebody came and said, I, re- I had this incredible dream, most lucid dream, and I really have to tell you. And I said, please, there's enough going on during the day. Please don't tell me the dream. And the person said, I have to. And I said, okay, then. Well, I was already feeling a bit tired. <laughs> and the person started going into the details, and they were getting completely absorbed. And as it happens, there in the, uh, the teacher's room, when I was sitting in a kind of armchair. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say, in tens of thousands of one-to-one meetings and small group meetings, First, they're sitting there and she's relating this dream. And they're going to, and I said, Yes, yes. <laughs> and I fell asleep <laughs> right in the middle of her description. The only time, all these years, I actually fell asleep when someone was actually relating something. <laughs> and then she said, Am I boring you? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, with a dream, and the clarity of the dream, and particularly if the dream, as psychotherapists will say, if the dream repeats itself again, there may be an opportunity for some immediate ins- insight here. What is it telling one? But the telling, the revelation, allow it please to be as spontaneous as possible, not the speculation. We, we, we obscure the dream without thinking that way. With anger, something, something, noticed feelings burned by it, both when someone expresses it to me and when I do not express it to anyone. What's the way of working or playing with the release of anger? In very uh, difficult areas it can, can be with anger. Some, again, if we look looking into these various forms and states of mind which we experience, some of you know how difficult it is for you to deal with anger which is directed to you. Somebody is angry with you. And how we get into one of, often one or two syndromes with the anger, fight or flight. We either pull back, run away, withdraw, contract, or whatever, or when faced with anger, when being under attack, sometimes the only defence that we use is that, or we attack back. Someone says something critical to us, so immediately the mind of revenge comes in, right. You want to hear something about yourself? Right, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) And this goes back and back and forth. Anger, fueling anger. And as uh, one sees, as the person points out, the feelings are burning burning with hatred, burning with negativity. Then, that's there, and I think with anger, I think it expresses to us we can't see the person 
for the anger. We can only see the effect. We can only see the condition which is emerging out at that time. So anger just has to be the results of past conditioning and um, pressure and intensity and <coughs> judgmental mind and many other factors in the person's life. So when we're saying, let's look totally at a situation, let's look totally at another, if we can get the sense of what it is to look totally, we'll see the anger, of course we will. We won't be fighting, won't be fleeing, but we'll see the anger, but we'll see the anger of the person in relationship to the whole person. The intuition, the sense, this anger which is going on with this person is the effect of cumulus conditions, recent and long distant past. And when we're actually with the anger, we'll be noted, we'll recognize that, we'll be, we'll be so clear about it that in that anger we'll um, be able to accommodate it. And lots of situations, and here and in New York City and other places in the world, are an opportunity for us in the more gross negative irritations that we are subtle ones to be able to say, okay, let me see if I can just observe with an understanding, not being full of loving kindness and saying, oh, this poor person is just a result of their karma and they don't realise what bad karma because they're going to go to the hell realms if they continue like this. <laughs> 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 but rather looking at the totality of the, pers of the person which helps to accommodate the anger. Really learning to accommodate this anger. And similarly, when we are on fire and we are burning, <laughs> and all sometimes the self-righteousness which comes in with our views, with our, our anger, what is it that we're not understanding? What is it that we're not seeing? What is it we're not recognizing? What, do we, what is it that we're not s sensing? That we think the anger is the solution. And I think if we can just take the, 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 the more subtle ones and get a sense for that. And similarly, what I have found when people are angry with uh, myself and anybody who is in any kind of uh, role of authority, whatever it might be, has to receive his or her fair share of uh, anger and uh, hostility and sometimes huge... Uh, This evening I would like to answer, or endeavour to answer at least, some further questions which have been placed on paper at the table here during the retreat. Earlier in the retreat, of course, we had a period of questions and some of those I responded to. And of course I would just like to remind you as well that with the particular question which comes, it's not always possible, obviously, for me to recognize the, the kind of background to the question which has been placed. So my uh, responses to it um, may be directly relevant to the questioner, hopefully, of course, but um, may touch on other aspects of the question which are not of immediate concern to the person who uh, sent the question. So, this evening, over this 45-minute uh, period, 
I'd just like to go through some of the questions. I picked some of the, the questions out here, and they are some of them are similar, of course, to other questions which other people had, or hopefully some other questions were actually answered through the small group meetings, through the talks, through the instructions for the day, and so forth. We are in India, where devotion plays a large part in people's lives, and many of us come from Christian backgrounds, where similarly devotion is strongly emphasized. What is devotion, and what part does it have to play in the here and now in liberation? In, with regard to devotion, I am uh, immediately reminded, and I am sure others here too are, of the quite remarkable capacity which is expressed by uh, the Tibetan peoples. And what also I've noticed as well is how much of that serves as an inspiration for others as well. And I remember some years ago Norman here telling me that some people, some Westerners, have gone to listen to a talk perhaps by one of the Tibetan lamas, in this case um, in Canada, in Vancouver, I believe. And the person, persons went and they were given some instructions and then they were invited to um, engage in what one might call the um, um, some preliminary practices. And some of these can be quite arduous and they can include 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantras, 100,000 mandalas. And the person in the listening and in that inner response which has come from the listening has actually gone home, they have very little exposure to Buddhist teachings, have not been to such places as Buddhgaya, and out of that communication have actually gone home and have actually engaged in the very serious and some, and some of us might call quite arduous discipline and, ex- and express that devotion. And, uh, and from that devotion, let leading on to other uh, areas of spiritual life. And as the person points out, both here and also in the, in the Western world and other parts of the world, devotion plays a large and very significant part. With regard to being here, how they is here, and feel to the general thrust and outflow of the, this kind of engagement with life which we are participating in, I would say that what we are engaged in here is an activity which by necessity is utterly devotional. I can't think of anything which could be so fully devotional as this kind of exploration and inquiry and these meditative processes. Because it requires from us, from our, from our heart, from the very deep and expansive place in our hearts, a response to life, to the immediacy of life. And if there isn't that care and that devotion to the ordinary and the familiar and the everyday, I think our devotional life tends to lack a a sense of fulfilment about it. 
So I do say of our time and our days here, and hopefully one's heart's wishes that this is extended everywhere and anywhere, that we recognise the, the deep place of the heart in life and the deep place of devotion. In that, of course, well, there is that devotion, and sometimes devotion, and therefore the devotee, who is in the relationship to the devotion, does have, as it were, a particular object of devotion. That object, according to the tradition, according to the contemporary ways, may change in form, in name, in exposure. And here we're saying here, let's give all objects great devotion. Let our heart truly be filled with devotion. <coughs> but we're also saying here, in our days here, it's not that the devotion itself is in order to achieve being in the here and now. It's not that it's in order to achieve liberation, to achieve freedom, but rather, in a rather profound and wondrous way, we are free to express our devotion. So we're not looking at devotion, I would say, as a kind of end result, which rather the devotion leads to some end result, and therefore it's a kind of intensely personal and purposeful devotion to a particular, but rather we are free to express the heart. We are free to express this uh, way of being in the world. So I think, I, I would say that devotion is, is an outpouring of, from our understanding of freedom rather than a means to it. Is selfishness a trait, that's a, a, a pattern, a habit, and Fred uh, reminded me a little bit uh, earlier on, in fact, that um, probably quite a large percentage of people here, the uh, English is the second language, and being a second language, or sometimes a third language, can make it a little bit difficult to follow the, the threads of these uh, uh, evenings. Is selfishness a trait, that means a pattern, a, a habit, which we are born with, and if we try to overcome this by performing unselfish deeds, which are contrary to our wishes, are we then not becoming uh, martyrs? Understand? Person, sometimes we, we look at our life and we, 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 we think, I'm such a selfish person. And my, my selfishness manifests itself in all sorts of ways which I want to take things from life. And I'm just thinking, what's good for me? What's right for me? What can I get out of this? And this pattern, this gets a kind of grip on us. And so sometimes we, we say to ourselves, we say to each other, well, right now, at this point in my life, all that I need to do is to really think about myself, see what's what's good for me. That's what really matters. And I think we have to watch this kind of trade. As far as whether we are born with it or not, I would regard it as a speculation. First of all, one would have to remember the birth. Sometimes, in the selfishness which occurs, for us, we find it difficult to cope with it. 
and we feel distinctly uncomfortable with it. So sometimes as a compensation for the selfishness, what we endeavour to do is to express selflessness <coughs> through the actions. So we think, if I keep doing good deeds, if I keep performing, engaging in wholesome actions, by that activity I'll reduce my degree of selfishness, I'll become a less selfish person. But I think if we take that approach and think that by the doings, by the actions, we'll become less selfish, one wonders who's going to make the measurement? Who's going to make the decision that I am getting less selfish and more selfless? And can it not be that the decision which I make may in fact change the following day? And one small incident and one's mind can say, that's the proof, I'm really selfish and all this good, these good things I'm doing, actually I'm not doing anything any good because I think, well that's because I want to get something back from it. And so one is in danger, not only of living in the selfishness, but even, and I hear this regularly, even thinking that the wholesome action, the unwholesome, sorry, the wholesome action, the selfless action, is actually very selfish. And I think then with the possibility in our life, in our selfishness and our selflessness, of it becoming for us a breeding ground for conflict with ourselves and of course with judging others. So I would rather than take the approach here of action to reduce selfishness, I think it's m much more potential for our, the immediacy of our freedom in, in life is to, as it were, understand, track the, the mind which is judging selfishness, in which way that is showing itself? What's the feature of that? How is that re revealing itself? And to be, I think, acutely um, conscious here of the kind of particular situation where the selfishness <coughs> appears. Do you understand? If you say to yourself, God, I'm such a selfish person, I, I live so selfishly. That generalisation about yourself will inhibit you. It will prevent you from actually saying, well, wh in what specific, in what actual time and place? What occurred there in my life that I decided that incident was a selfish incident? We might find in looking into that with some, with realisation and insight into that, that there is a ca wonderful capacity to dissolve that selfishness. Therefore, not through action is selfishness dissolved, I would say, but through insight. <coughs> if letting go is emptiness, what will be left? It's frightening. Rather unfortunately, <coughs> this concept emptiness 
In our English, it's a translation. I'll try to be scholastic for a moment or two. I'm not much good at it, but I'll try. It's the word in the Sanskrit, this very ancient Indian language, is shunyata, shunyata. And two evenings ago, Fred was <coughs> speaking about the emptiness of independent, inherent self-existence. That nothing has an existence anywhere unto itself. That it's in fact a belief through the patterns of mind, <coughs> through the thoughts and the forms of relationship, which says, this has an independent self-existence. This person this place, this mind state, this thought, this experience, this <laughs> life, or whatever. So the person asks, if letting go is emptiness, or the revelation of emptiness, what would be left? It's frightening. <laughs> so in that, in our, as we've spoken of the uh, necessity at times to see where we're holding and what we're holding on to. To regard that holding on to as a kind of hot coal. When one's perceptions and intuitions are saying this holding on to whatever it might be is unsatisfactory in the moment, unsatisfactory tomorrow and the day afterwards. Our treatment of it is one of treating it as a hot coal. In our letting go, <coughs> when we speak of emptiness, if it's the absence of any inherent self-existence, emptiness also means fullness. It means fullness. It means this vast web of life and beyond. So I can appreciate for the person and others too over the years. You know, we, when we say oh, empty, it has a slight negative uh, connotation because of the language use in the east, in the west. But if that does have that. If that concept emptiness has a kind of, how do you say, it's frightening association, simple, let go of emptiness. Why cherish any concept if the association with it is scary, frightening, unsatisfactory? <coughs> There's obviously clearly and obviously <coughs> far greater things of immediate significance in life than the cherishing of some religious terminology. Do you believe in the power of praying or is it a cover-up? Trying to stop that war here while praying seems to be the only answer for us. Hopefully it doesn't reach that stage, of course. Hope, I'm oh, sorry, yes, people have been reminding me and uh, my voice tends to uh, drop. Um, the person referred to um, with regard to the war, 
And I said, hopefully it doesn't reach the point of being a war. And let me, I'll... Sorry, yes? Repeat the question? Yes. The question is, do you believe in the power of praying? And then the person follows on with reference to the war, a possible war, for example. And with, re with regard to that, as I mentioned, uh, uh, after yesterday evening's talk, tomorrow morning at 10.30 here, there's special peace meditation, and similar um, meditations and reflections are taking place, both here in Budgaya, at the tree, <coughs> with uh, Tibetan uh, lamas, monks, nuns attending, also, we you know, in monasteries in Nepal, and also in various Western places. 10.30 tomorrow morning is the time, uh, equivalent of midnight in New York, New York, when the deadline comes to its end. And we do wish to invite anybody who would like to come, 10.30 tomorrow morning, and Norman has a, a shortwave radio, and at 10.30 in the morning we will begin the peace meditation together um, by, hopefully, listening for five minutes to the BBC BBC World Service to see what the current situation is there. At the moment, it is. I heard today from Norman that it is still very, very, very serious. Do you believe in the power of prayer, the power of praying? Um, yes, unashamedly and unequivocally. In prayer. That's a further response of uh, heartfulness and uh, devotion. There are forms of prayer in life in which one's, in touching one's heart and the responses of the heart to a situation. And one's heart's wish is for a situation to change, for example. To change from suffering to the end of suffering. And it's a remarkable thing that with the heart and with the power of prayer that it does serve for deeply spiritual people on this earth in different parts of the world as a wonderful resource and, and refuge, as a wonderful form of expressing something towards life. That prayerful person may use the name of... Uh, of a deity, may use the name of a, a teaching, and may not, but there is simply that response, that deep prayerfulness for the wish for the welfare, the love, and the awakening of humanity. And so, in sittings, at the end of the sittings, I will say, or Henrietta, or Norman, or Fred, May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. And that, that, that to me, that is a, a prayer. It's the wish for the welfare and the heartfulness of life. And what I have noticed with that, and with friends who are engaged in social justice, in the peace movement, in the women's movements, in the movement for the welfare of the environment and that love of our earth, I have noticed that those of us who have the, an appreciation of the power of prayer, the power of the heartfulness, 
is such that it has a kind of sustaining life to it in an extraordinary way. So some forms of prayer, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, that heartful wish, which is verbalized. It's said in words. But there's that prayer too, where one just senses with one's heart without any language re re required <coughs> that all beings really worthy of our love and care and attention and support. And we wish that prayer, not only for ourselves and others who are far away, but that same prayer going out to the next generation and the generation after that, which is so reliant on our considerations, on a prayerful life. When you say it's good to listen to many teachings, isn't it something like mixing drinks? <laughs> A little dangerous. <laughs> I have to respond there. It depends what's in the drink, really, isn't it? But anyway, I, uh, with regard to teachings, and I think it's a very... Uh, um, how should we say, a uh, significant question. And I think one of the things, if I may say here, with regard to uh, India and, um, and, and the West, when I first um, uh, hitched to India, and that was um, in 67, and in the various uh, years um, since then, I've had the opportunity to, to come, although I don't get the chance to travel these days around uh, India, which I love to do. But nevertheless, in being India and talking with people on this retreat and the and interests which take, take place there, sometimes the question does arise, do I actually st stay fully committed to one body of teaching and remain completely uh, attentive and devoted to, to that, which would mean and would require from us a kind of uh, putting aside other opportunities, or would it be necessary and valuable for me while in India, and now the same in fact can be say, said of the West as well, because there is as much, if not more, diversity now. There's been a tremendous transmission of these teachings from uh, East uh, to West. That, or should I explore the diversity and just listen to what my heart says? And I think it's an important question to, to look at, and particularly in, in India. What I can just say from my uh, experience with regard to this is, in my monk's life, first three years I stayed with the same teacher, exposed to the same teachings, and, and very... Uh, similar here, one might say, sit and watch, walk and watch, and see what's being revealed. No, that's implied in that. And I have found then at that time um, immense, uh, I believe, immense value and usefulness in the, the, all the revelations that take place through, we might say, the heart's wish to live with one's eyes open. 
And similarly, for others of you too who are here, a number of old friends, of course, who have participated in these activities, both here in the West over the years, but I would say too, feel free, very important here again, feel, feel free to explore, but freedom with wisdom, freedom with discernment, and the discernment element of wisdom and understanding is that we don't, as it were, throw our freedom away to explore. We don't throw our freedom away to explore. We sense our freedom. That freedom may be to be focused in a particular body of teachings. That may be the expression of it, a manifestation of a very important freedom. But the same freedom also can express itself in this wondrous world of saying, okay, let me explore this. Let me use the discernment. Let me see what's valuable here, what's, what's helpful, what I can explore. And discernment means what in the body of teaching or teachings I can also let go of. What I don't need. And, of course, one of the I think concerns that I have had and have expressed over the years on um, numerous occasions in retreats and uh, outside of the retreats, to be extremely cautious and extremely watchful of the mind which narrows itself and in the narrowing of itself begins to think of only way, only approach, only teacher, or whatever. And I think, that, I think one needs to exercise a real caution in that, because a danger in that is that we begin to give selfhood, selfness, to something which doesn't inherently have it. So I'm not saying only, and I'm not saying diversity, think, look carefully. I understand the concept of be here now and of not seeking, pursuing after a result. Yet, I have problems relating this to the lives of visionaries such as Martin Luther King or Gandhi or the Buddha who generated, created profound changes out of their convictions and determinations towards a particular result. What do you say with regard to these, this kind of vision? Understand the question? Here we have been saying here that we're not engaged in the activity of pursuing. I mentioned in the evening talk last night this, the mentality of um, hunting and gathering. In this case, it might be hunting and gathering of experiences or knowledge. And yet we see that those of us who have much love for these figures... Martin Luther King, Gandhi, the Buddha, and others who have, in a way I would say, graced the earth with their presence. Seem to have a vision. And uh, a vision which, as a kind of movement, the heart of that vision is a liberation movement. Gandhi wishing to liberate India 
from the tyranny of British colonialism. And if I may say, as one uh, born in England, I still find it remarkable that, this, that the uh, English, the British, spent more than 150 years in this country with its diversity of deep spiritual religious teachings and at the end of 150 years had learned pretty well nothing. <laughs> the whole period was a complete and utter waste of time and it just fed the kind of patronising colonial mentality. And very few exceptions actually were able to see through that pattern of mind and say, in all of this diversity of India, what's depth, what's there to be discovered in this country and there's much to be discovered. So we see there, there with, with, with Mahatma Gandhi, with Martin Luther King, the liberation of the black community from oppression. The Buddha, the liber liberation of men and women, women from the forces of inner and social conditioning. So we see the expressions and manifestations of forms of liberation. Does the vision for this actually mean that we are bound to the result? What would have happened if if, if Mahatma Gandhi was just tied to the result, dependent on the result, embroiled in the result, of the Buddha or of Martin Luther King. I would say vision in life comes without the bondage to result. And I think when we, you and I are preoccupied with results, and achievement and accomplishment and getting what we want from li life, I think that actually inhibits the vision. Can self-control be a tool for liberation from desire, for example? Can self-control be a tool for liberation from desire, for example? For li I say, this is a difficult area with control. I think one of the things which... Um, about being here in India things don't seem to be quite as much under control <laughs> <coughs> and sometimes I've noticed in myself sometimes in the West and I'm just of course moment of course talking superficially here that when the train arrives so punctually and the bus and the aeroplane leaves right on the, the minute <coughs> and the shops are open at this time and it closes at this time the electricity, the gas and the water supplies are, are regularly 24 hours a day and everything seems to be so perfectly under control 
One's heart starts yearning for India. And I, what, <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the things which we have in a way been indoctrinated into and it's been pressed upon us is to have a kind of control over our life. And I think this is in part due to the impact I may say, of social forces. We should be in control of our life. We should be extremely clear about what we're going to do with our life and where it's going to go. And we should fit in with the required pattern which society itself has set us. And there's a prescription for life. School, in the most cons conservative uh, forms, school education, getting the career together, uh, meeting the right man or woman, um, engagement, marriage, sex, children, up the ladder of the career, um, um, investments, um, insurance for retirement, <laughs> and death. <laughs> and intelligent people are expected to live this way and if one doesn't conform to this form of control, one is a social deviant. <laughs> like the rest of you. <laughs> and I think one needs, in a life of... Uh, when compared with that, almost a radical vision. I think one needs, in one's life, to see how much of that is imposed upon us. How much of that the heart responds to? At times, in that, what some might describe as a conservative way of life, there also can be a tremendous, and one is always delighted to meet people, and there are such people, and a number of them, who live what seems to be the prescription that the society has said, as I just laid out there, yet nevertheless don't seem to be burdened by it don't seem to be living heavily as they proceed through life in that particular way. And I think we should always be extraordinarily aware of being judgmental in that way. And too, since here in India we've taken the choice, we might say, to step out of that, for some of you a short term and some long, long term, Still, even in stepping out of that, as you see and experience so well, how easily the control is going on with oneself. Internalized, and we experience it in, in different ways. And as I said earlier in one of the other uh, talks or questions I can't recall, perhaps with control, there's also some fear. Certain forms of control are, are useful. One drives um, on the left-hand side of the road in India. This Even this control is not too common here, but nevertheless. <laughs> one <laughs> and when one sees a certain practical usefulness about it. So I think the question in terms of control and liberation would be to ask ourselves, is there in this world anybody body of person, body of teachings for that matter, tradition or whatever, <coughs> who 
ex I sense or feel whatever is exercising too much control over me, has too much power over my life in, in the determinant of my activities. That may be a very close person to you, maybe a very good friend, maybe a mother, father, whoever. And similarly, when I look at myself and my day-to-day -day life, am I trying to control my life because I fear to live it? So I think, let us be really free to explore. Not think of control as a tool for liberation, but liberation as an opportunity to transcend control. <coughs> you mentioned in the first or second night, jokingly, the vipassana was too long a word. I had mentioned there, I think I can't record, but something like our Zen brothers and sisters have Zen, it's nice, and perhaps vipassana could be dropped and made to vip, it would be easier. However, so this has got. So please, I'll, it's a rather long paragraph. So, in summary, it, the person is asking, please explain the concept vipassana what it means in English and what insight meditation is in the context of that. And the background to it. Is it a person asks, is it a school of Buddhism? Is it a technique or an approach? <coughs> um, one of the questions, <coughs> if I may say, which uh, I would uh, emphasize, reiterate here, that it's... Uh, what shall we say, Christopher's perception, Christopher's view. In other words, if you ask uh, another teacher, he or she will, might respond quite, quite differently from me, and why not? So, wh what has happened over, if I understand the recent history, there is a vast body of teachings, Dharma teachings, concerned with the emancipation of humanity. These teachings endeavour to leave no stone unturned and really explore all the things of life where we, as it were, might be stuck. In recent years there has been, almost I think in the, the Buddhist world, and particularly in the Theravada Buddhist world, a, almost a, a kind of renaissance. And it's a renaissance of recognising the validity of silence, stillness and the uh, potential for transformation through silence and stillness. Then, some of the texts, and as Norman was speaking to you yesterday evening under the, uh, the tree, some of the texts of the Buddha have been and are being used as something of a reminder, a resource for that. So what has happened is that there are teachings, and some of the teachings deal with breathing, deal with the feeling, deeper inner feelings, as well as the superficial ones, deal with the thought world, deal with the world of objects, sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touch, and says, look, here it is, this is, this is our life going on here. And 
with that, with that body of teachings, a certain formality, a certain discipline has been encouraged in which the Sangha, Sangha, Sanskrit word, it literally means gathering. So, in which there is a gathering of us, in this case, in this gathering we participate, co-participate together in the silence and stillness in an awareful way, in a heartful way. With that, some uh, uh, method and technique is useful there at times, <coughs> breathing, body awareness and other things we have talked about. But essentially it's the silence and the stillness of things which is uh, and the body of teachings interacting together, groups, the evening talk, one-to-one -one meetings, that serves as the catalyst <coughs> for liberating change. So I would say it's not that we're making meditation with or without the techniques, as the highlight, we're saying the totality of things is the highlight. The fullness of things is the highlight. So there's no emphasis in my mind, my heart here, say method, technique, meditation, exclusively. Understand the wholeness of the day is the highlight. In the wholeness of the day we find freedom and wonder. Other teachers, if I may say, having uh, the privilege of lending an ear on various teachers, both here in India and in Thailand and Sri Lanka, this is in my uh, monk's days, will, in their emphasis, will, will emphasize the, say, the purity of the technique, the methodology, and feel that's what should be stressed most of all. So again, we, there, are, there are differences there. And it's not to say one is right or one is wrong, whatever. Let's, let's find out. So when after my, some years, if I may say, my time in India, I spent, whatever it was now, I can't remember, two or three years in India, and I had the uh, opportunity to listen and lend an ear on many teachers and uh, teachings, and the lengths of time varied. And it's a period of my life when I was in India which, for which I'm immensely grateful, immensely grateful. I'll just take one more question here, and then we call it. Um, <laughs> understandable, but this relates to, <coughs> to non-violence. I've noticed that some people who are inside their mosquito nets have been busy killing the mosquitoes. <laughs> Please talk about, can you talk about non-violence? <laughs> I think <coughs> this area of non-violence, and particularly as some of our hearts are turned to these days which lie ahead of our people of the earth, that it can seem almost um, unnecessary in a way, almost incongruous in a way. Why, why on earth be bothered about a life of one of these um, wretched mosquitoes <coughs> who seems to be only have one purpose in existence <laughs> and that's to make one's horizontal posture as miserable and as disturbed <laughs> as possible. 
So why not just snuff its life out? <laughs> not trying to clap too hard in case others know what's going on. <laughs> so that one can have some kind of free space in the net. And in the middle of the night, it seems an unusually attractive idea. <coughs> I would say, we're not here, I least for myself, not here just to preserve life at all costs. I think it's a... Although I think spiritual life is an, is a, an extraordinary marriage of realism and idealism, but I don't think we're here at all costs to preserve life per se. And I think it leaves us in... Uh, enormous difficulties, spiritually and, uh, and intellectually, for that better. But we're saying, can my heart open, and that expansiveness of that open heart, <coughs> to include more than I normally am capable of? Can my heart open? and begin to accommodate in life more than what my personal likes and dislikes are. I may not like this mosquito, I may be concerned about its threat, its malarial threat, its itching threat, its sound threat to my ear, or whatever. But can I find enough space inside the heart to say, okay, we may coexist, but I'm inside the mosquito and you are out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.